With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everybody. It's your demonically possessed bruiser. And it is I, your witchy wizard. Yes, witchy wizard. Come with me on a trip. I live in a bog. All right. I didn't ask for any of your backstory. I don't want to know the lore behind the witchy wizard. Every 15 years, I gather a baby from the local village. It's like, why can't we just be living in a simple world without these backstories and just this whole to do with the lore of the wizard? Come see my bog children. They love me so. Today's episode's on Hellboy. Can we just talk about that? Can we just get into it right now? Hellboy rules. Hellboy fucking rules. Um, Hellboy's really cool. Can I tell you the main um, the main kind of uh, uh, conflict in my week doing research for Hellboy? Absolutely. As you spoke, uh, you spoke of this to me uh, before we started. Uh, now, we are supposed to gather facts and we're supposed to, like, gather interviews and kind of get below the surface of, you know, what makes these properties popular. But uh, all I wanted to do was keep reading these fucking good-ass comic books. <laughs> Mike Mignola makes some good-ass comic books. Absolutely. And everything else we're going to talk about is pretty much, I'm going to say, like, just tertiary. They're just, they're fucking solid, compelling, artistically innovative, yet still, like, familiar and kind of, and, and classic, just visual storytelling in little boxes where stuff happens with ink and color. And uh, I, I do have to say really quick, too, before I, lest I forget, this was a donator, uh, a patron layer uh, donation. What a uh, chump. We'd have done this for free. <laughs> but I guess it did give us the jump start on it. What so, a maroon. Shout outs to Dex uh, for donating for this episode. Uh, Dex, a big supporter of uh, my Twitch stream as well as this podcast. Dex is always fun in the chat. And the 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 shout out here, the the promotion for the donation from Dex is a really sweet one. It's for the Dornbetcher Children's Hospital. You can donate uh, to the Dornbetcher. I, I hope I'm not butchering this. The Dornbetcher Children's Hospital at onwardohsu.org forward slash kids. So O N W A R D O H S U dot org forward slash kids so if you especially if you are appreciative of dex's donation choice for a podcast topic please 
go there and send them a donation to the ch- to the children. To the children, Jay. I mean, unless you love cancer and heart disease. And what better child to ta- to discuss than Hellboy, the <laughs> ultimate <laughs> devil child uh, that became a man that has weird aging properties. We'll get into all of it. Let's get into all of it. Yeah. You gotta start with Mike Mignola. Mignola, right? Mignola. Like, uh, like you know, when you make a pesto, you need pignola, pignoli ah, nuts. Like you need a ticatini. Yeah. Uh, you need a cantanini. A potosini. You are the least Italian human being I've ever known in my entire life. Scotch-Irish, a little bit of German. Mike Mignola (laughs) was born in Berkeley, California in 1960. His first work was publishing illustrations in the comic Reader. Um, And he... uh, he uh, it was the first uh, regularly published comics industry news fanzine, which I thought was kind of interesting. Uh, it ran from 1961 to 1984, um, and it was founded in 1961 as On the Drawing Board by Jerry Bales, the father of comics fandom. Mignola's first published work was a spot illustration of Red Sonia in the comic reader number 183, and his first cover for the comic reader was number 196. If you're a fan of his work, definitely check those out. It's a real cool blast from the past to kind of see his take on those. And you can really, he always had this um, very specific style that you get when you read the, the comic book, uh, Hellboy. It evolved, I would say. Uh, if you, uh, uh, I mean, he always loved like darkness and he actually says, it's like official blurb is, I just wanted to draw monsters. Yes. So like he enjoys like darkness and shadow. But when you think of the Mike Mignola style, it is definitely not what you see in his like earlier works. Right, right. He uh, graduated in 1982 from the California College of the Arts with a BFA in illustration. Uh, he That was uh, back when uh, that was still an option and not just a horrific uh, <laughs> fool's errand. <laughs> Why is it a fool's errand now? Because uh, if you can draw, just fucking get paid to draw as quickly draw. as you can. Just put shit on the internet and get fucking paid. Yeah. Right? Okay. Uh, in uh, 1983, he worked as an inker at Marvel Comics. That was when he first kind of started uh, getting uh, a real kind of uh, foot uh, into into the career in the comic books industry. Um, his, uh, his official, uh, he genuinely has said this in multiple interviews. Uh, in interviews, he is a very like uh, shy, not shy, modest kind of guy. Uh, he definitely knows what his limitations are. He's always like very for someone that is so involved in like the darkness and the macabre. He is a he's just kind of like a cheerful, chubby, bald guy. I think now he's growing like an old man bush beard. But uh, he says that uh, he on purpose sought out inking, not as like a, his foot in the door, but because he just wanted to like get steady work as an illustrator and like support his side, you know, his side like pinup fantasy illustration work mm. and he thought inking was an easy job mm. you're just tracing right it's, it's easy you're just tracing other people's shit it's which fine. i did love that in chasing amy right yeah. when he <laughs> like when he just gets shit on over and over again for being an anchor or whatever yeah. turns out it's incredibly hard and yeah. he talks about how um especially in a lot of books for like if you're a penciler and you're pushing out you know, two books a month, three books a month. If you're like a really prolific guy, you're not even drawing the faces. It's just loose outlines. And Mignola, Mignola, Miggles. Mignola. Migs Mickelson. Riccatini. <laughs> Con- Condole- is that racist? Either like, way. M- the, <laughs> like the voice of Mario and Luigi is a less racist. <laughs> um, he found himself uh, kind of in over his head doing all sorts of like 
honest to God, making comics work that he wasn't prepared to do. Uh huh. You know, he, he's kind of on the fly. He's learning the secrets of how to put together comic books by handling the physical pages of the uh, people doing work in the 80s. And these comic books were fucking, you know, big titles. He worked on Daredevil, uh, I, uh, Power Man, and Iron Fist, and uh, later such titles as The Incredible Hulk, Alpha Fight, and the Rocket Raccoon limited series. Um, and, of course, much he like... was... Yeah, Rocket Raccoon. Yeah. It is... Imagine, like, the weirdness of... He's, he's, imagine the weirdness of your first amateurish work like, you know, right up the gate, like your baby steps towards being a professional. And it's kind of like this funny little footnote that is like, oh, it's funny. You know, the Hellboy guy got to start doing this goofy little character named Rocky Raccoon. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, then 30 years later, it becomes one of the most popular superhero movies of all time. Yeah. And now it's an infinite reprint. And that character <laughs> especially like so yeah. popular in in in. um in that series. Uh, he, like, there's no reason that I should be able to buy a new copy of the Rocket <laughs> Raccoon miniseries. And yet, here we are. Uh, he began working, uh, of course, like so many comic book uh, industry fellows. He, he ends up jumping back and forth. He ends up going over to DC Comics in 1987. It's Again, it's literally like, again, right, they're right across the street from each other or mm-hmm. whatever, and people just walk across the street and go right into the other place. He uh, drew the Phantom Stranger and the World of Krypton limited series. Um, so now he's getting more into full-on illustration. Um, the Phantom Stranger is pretty needy. He battles mysterious and occult forces in various titles, um, which definitely connects to Hellboy. Uh, there was a mini series where uh, that that Mignola worked on that had him stripped of his powers by the Lords of Order as he attempted to fight the Lords of Chaos. He was kind of like an old school DC character that they brought back uh, for this like kind of mini little mini series. And then World of Krypton, which was a new history of Superman's home planet, of course, being Krypton. Uh, and uh, he starts working with uh, he's working with writer Jim Starlin. Um, Mignola, uh huh. Uh, World of Krypton. Uh, also, he gets to work with John Byrne. Yeah, so that's the first moment he's working with John Byrne. I don't know if it's the first, but it is a moment of collaboration. I think this is if I'm if I'm getting my timelines correctly. Uh, Byrne was a big, uh, big fucking deal because of his run on X Men. Uh huh. And so uh, he was a hotshot artist, and DC had given a lot of um, hotshot artists their, their kind of chance to reboot. Uh, these classic superheroes post-crisis ah. or crisis on infinite earth the anti-monitor you know that picture of superman holding supergirl being like oh why yeah yeah of uh, course. Su- oh why i always say sound like this oh why i'm super i'm superman nobody likes me anymore <laughs> batman's cooler uh that's also the um the george perez freaky wonder woman comic uh-huh. that we talked about in our wonder woman episode is also from that reboot i god i hope i'm getting the timing right on this um <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so his work with Starlin is where he kind of uh, jumps from, like, a workhorse to, like, a holy shit, who is this guy kind of deal. Starlin is credited for his space operas and comics. He co-created Marvel's Thanos, among other characters, and wrote on uh, different Batman uh, comics for DC, namely um, A Death in the Family, of which Mignola drew the cover. Mm. Uh, Death in the Family, look it up. It's an iconic cover. I immediately recognized it, and and it definitely holds some 
some of Mignola's style that he's later known for a little bit, especially just in the lettering, actually, almost more of the um, title. Oh. looks kind of Hellboyish. Um Mignola uh, also created a one-shot for Gotham, uh, well, a one-shot called Gotham by Gaslight <laughs> with Brian Augustin. It's set in the late 1800s Europe. It was one of those where they are kind of pulling, especially around that time they were doing this a lot, sort of pulling their mainstay characters and putting them in different time periods and different kind of uh, alternate like universes, essentially. Elseworlds, I believe. Uh, Elseworlds, yes, totally so dead on. between uh, Cosmic Odyssey with Starlin and Gotham under Gaslight, uh, is that the actual title? Anyway. Gotham by Gaslight. Gotham by Gaslight. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Mignola's style, I think because he has to output more work, kind of undergoes a uh, more radical change where ah. he has these like uh, boxier kind of uh, anatomy, uh, thinner ink lines, but complemented by just thick, thick blocks of shadow. Yes. And uh, the way he uses shadow to both like suggest detail, but also like streamline and abstractify his his artwork is incredible. Mm. Um I've seen so like every every cartoonist, every comic book artist that comes across Mignola's work, like goes through a phase where they try and pull off that Mignola style because it's so efficient and effective and powerful, uh, especially in Hellboy's design. Um, the way he's like this big towering figure in this long trench coat in like these musty underground caverns. Sometimes Hellboy will just be like two highlights of the horns and like a single leg right? sticking out of the dark it's about this absence of detail yeah right he and that, that manages... really ma- makes it pop and 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 the way he uses the absence of detail to tell stories uh on on the page is really amazing there was there was somebody um i believe it's Hellboy's World or something like that is like is a book that just sort of does these like very intense breakdowns of Hellboy panels. And I was looking at one where it's three panels and one of the panels is just absolute is like a rectangular of just pure black mm-hmm. that signifies him like being knocked out essentially. But it, and it's you know that it, it's just kind of inserted in there. It's like a very slight detail it's like a large red panel with him at the very bottom just barely drawn it feels of him like falling with the trench coat and then a panel of black and then just like a close up on his face, like waking up uh, with like two words in a, in a word bubble. And it just says so much like in, in just that little minimalist way. Mignola wields um, negative space the same way Eddie Van Halen wields an electric guitar. Uh-huh. He's just a fucking, I can't even wrap my head around. Or it's him. like um, Andy Kaufman talking about, it's not about the jokes, it's about the space in between them. Yeah. You know, kind of in that way as well. Um, yeah, so uh, so Mignola's now kind of getting getting on a roll here, really getting his feet uh, deep in uh, deep in the his heels dug deep rather into the comic books industry. Um, he works on um, a, a, a comic adaptation for Epic Comics called um, Fafford and the Gray Mouser, which is a sword and sorcery. Uh, are these two sword and sorcery heroes, a barbarian and a thief, uh, written by Fritz Lieber? Um, uh, it's these kind of more humanist uh, fantasy heroes, and they're sort of their their ongoings. And again, it's a very dark fantasy world. We're really nudging closer and closer to kind of what he's going to get to with Hellboy. And then um, another graphic novel in '92, Iron Wolf: Fires of the Revolution, um, which is about the finest officer from Earth-based interstellar empire. Uh, Galactica in the 61st century um, who opposes the uh, Empress and now is a hunted outlaw waging war. Um, So he's just working on these really kind of more odd, dark for sure, DC 
titles. Um, but that's when uh, he starts to really get the feeling like he wants to, you know, tell more of these stories, but in his words, with his own guy. Uh, and that's where Dark Horse Comics oh, comes but, into play. Uh, mm-hmm. So before that, you know, Mignola is getting, besides, um, as he's getting more work within the uh, mainstream comics industry, uh, the comic convention is growing as well. As a kind of path, you know, uh, San Diego Comic Con is growing. Regional Comic Cons are becoming more popular, uh, driven a little bit by the collector's boom. But, you know, uh-huh. it's just uh, also the fact that Star Trek fans are aging. Anyway. Um, <laughs> and anyway, now we are in the 90s, though. Comic book yeah. boom, gritty, darker kind of style. And in his notebooks, mm-hmm. uh, he's drawing, uh, you know, because he's getting commission work. He's yes. getting all this stuff. Uh, in 1991, he, uh, I think... Either like I think someone just commissioned him to just draw whatever the hell he wanted. Yeah, he uh, he it, it was a, a drawing Mike Mignola did at a comic book convention. He did it of a demon with the name Hellboy written on his belt. Are you talking about that? I'm talking about that with a vulture on his back, and it's uh, he had no intention of doing anything serious with the concept, but eventually decided he liked the name. And I have a really fun. Um, quote here from him that was kind of leading up to that actually uh the one where i pulled the with my own guy uh he said i'd had a falling out with marvel which i wish i had known more about i couldn't dig up much about the falling out with marvel uh normally i can find that kind of good goss but i couldn't this time (laughs) and i went to dc i did a one issue batman story and that is actually called batman legends of the dark knight um i think the story is called sanctum it came out in november 1933 and i think it might be the first Thing he actually wrote at least definitely the only batman thing he wrote mm-hmm. uh and he's he said he uh that i plotted myself it was a straight up batman supernatural story and i had a lot of fun doing it it really felt like a turning point if i can do stories that really reflect me though i continue to do these stories and try to shoehorn other people's characters in really if i'm going to make up my own stories why don't i make up my own guy and and so yeah i think uh, especially in the comics industry you're always like like your whole dream is like you just want to acquire these like gi- you know gargantuan titles and get to do your own thing with them, right. which is super fun. But eventually, much like you know, so many people we've we've talked about before, Alan Moore, um, Frank Miller, um, a lot of people who end up you know getting to to play with characters like Swamp Thing, and you know <laughs> nobody was knocking down the door for Swamp Thing, <laughs> but uh, uh, you remember. Uh, um, which call it, uh, Mister Fast, the Flash. <laughs> and um uh yeah yeah just getting to or or not the flash um god what am i thinking of oh daredevil for the love of the god and the lord (laughs) daredevil no one was knocking down for daredevil either whatever they jumped on these properties they made him really popular again and then it's like but i want to go make my own world Mm, you know now that i've played in this world um and and that's definitely what mignola got to as well um, so we set the scene to the 90s, the collector's boom, and uh, in 1992, uh, a bunch of Marvel artists break off and form Image Comics, which we've covered in our... Um, extensively. Uh, Deadpool, and uh, especially in our Todd McFarlane episode. Yes. But all these young hotshots kind of break off and form Image Comics, and the money of, you know, so not only is it the creative freedom, but they get the bigger share of actually... You know, not having to give most of the money to a big publisher. Uh-huh. So it's uh, so the idea of the independent comic as a blockbuster superhero uh, uh, house is is born. 
So that uh, that is going on around the same time. A little bit earlier, uh, uh, we've got a man named Mike Richardson coming into play um, in Milwaukee, Oregon. He's an American comic book and manga publisher um, who founded uh, Dark Horse Comics. He went to Portland State University, and there he started acquiring different um, – just sort of different contacts from different artists, and he was starting to kind of put that together and, and get a little catalog of his own of, of artists that he wanted to kind of work with or support. Um, and he used a credit card with a $2,500 limit to open a small pop culture retail store after moving to Bend, Oregon with his wife and newborn daughter. That was called Pegasus Fantasy Books. It was opened on January 1st, 1980, and it was later changed to the name uh, Things from Another World in 1993. Now, this store grew into a chain of 11 locations across three states. Now, while this was going on, he started hosting different artists and writers in the comic book industry to come in and do meet and greets and different stuff like that. And almost all of them would come in and eventually start complaining that they didn't own or control any of the characters that they created. And he thought to himself, Hmm, my name's Mike Richardson. I'm a good guy. I think I'm fun. I don't know what this fucking guy was thinking, but I'll tell you what he did. He went and he he started his own uh, uh, publisher publishing company called Dark Horse Comics. He gets the idea to create his own comics publishing company by uh, uh, and 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 starting it up. Uh, he has uh, help from a friend, writer Randy Stradley, and they released their first publication, Dark Horse Presents Number 1, in July 1986. Um, they paid 100% of the book's profits to the creators featured in the book, and they were hoping to sell... 10,000 copies in order to just to break even. And it totally ended up uh, topping the 50,000 sales mark. Dark Horse Comics, uh, I guess I guess this fits into the uh, underground comic scene that was also happening, uh, we talk about in our Ninja Turtles episode, that yes. these black and white creator-owned books were kind of filling niches that the big two publishers weren't quite ready to fill. And it kind of like worked with the punk rock aesthetic and the zine aesthetic and Dark Horse kind of like put a little more muscle and a little better production quality uh, into those kind of books, including stuff like uh, Concrete, which is a like, and which was, I never read it, but it was like a moody kind of superhero. Yes, Concrete was, I think, one of the first big, I think it was the first kind of independent title that branched out and had its own uh, uh, publication through Dark Horse, right? Maybe. I, there's a, I, I'm a little blurry because this was like when I was reading comics, these would be the kind of books that I'm, I'm just going to admit it. Um, these are the kind of books that if I was looking through the pages of Wizard, I'd be like, oh, that looks sad. I want more. I want I want guys with guns for arms. Yeah. Dark Horse, just the name. It's the perfect name mm -hmm. for the for the company. And, and just it definitely it's definitely kind of. Um, uh, yeah, much, much like edgier in a non-lame way <laughs> kind of like image was oh no this is this is my grand thesis if once we get to it like my grand thesis is going to be dark horse versus image as like aesthetics and like what actually uh kind of made it through the years right um, right we should have a we should do a, a like a debate series where it's your dark horse and i'll be image and we'll just like go back and forth it's uh well well the well the kind gentleman from Dark Horse please stop jacking off into a pile of money. <laughs> sir, sir, this is a flagrant disregard of the rules of debate. 
And will the and will Mr. Image please stop vaping? All right, this is a non-vape zone. This is a non-vape zone. Um so anyways, going back to Mignola, this sets the stage perfectly for him. Is That's exactly what he wants. He wants total independence. He wants to be able to create his own world, create his own stuff. He's already having problems with Marvel. He's probably not, not having uh, uh, the best time with DC either, you know, um, other than just the great guidance he's getting. The people he gets to work under are fantastic. He, he'd already had his own... Um, kind of uh, world in mind he had his own stories in mind leading up to this he said the kind of stories I wanted to do I had in mind before I created Hellboy it's not like I created Hellboy and said hey now what does this guy do I knew the kinds of stories I wanted to do but just needed a main guy he initially created Hellboy um, as a part of a team of five he ended up scrapping this idea when he realized that he could not think of any team names that he liked uh, the concept was initially pitched apparently to a board of directors for DC Comics who loved it but did not like involving the idea of Hell which is hilarious to me because again talking about like image comics at the time and spawn and never like hell was like so cool during that time in comic books i don't know why they would be so uh christians man can't can't piss them off seriously right you know i was reading this really funny um this interview that i don't think i put down this quote but he said shortly after he created hellboy he got like a letter from like a minister at a christian church and a letter from like a high priest at like the church of satan both praising him for this comic book and he was just like okay i think i'm on to something here <laughs> because if i'm getting both sides to appreciate this work there's i'm doing something fucking interesting um so anyways uh i guess hellboy first appears in uh the san diego comic-con comics number two in august 1993 um it's a little it's a little book that they put out that like featured short original stories by the artists that were brought in as guests Yes, it was co-written by his uh, his his co his cohort, his collaborator John Byrne. So John Byrne coming into play again on this show. That's a that's a big name to get attached to your crazy Huge. new thing. Huge and co-wrote with him the first full arc, right? Seeds of Destruction, mm-hmm. Seed of Destruction. Um, so yeah, I mean, what 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 if what can we say about John Byrne that we, we covered him pretty extensively? We covered him pretty extensively in the X Men episode. The X Men episode, but correct? He, this was a good. These were you know he was still riding high, um, as like uh, as like a beloved figure in comics. Um, the Seeds of Destruction arc that he helps him with. Uh, is a little more verbose than later Hellboy comics would, which be. makes a lot of sense because uh, I, I feel like X Men is very verbose. Well, that was like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was Chris Claremont too. But like, it's it's there was the one of the things that made Hellboy unique in this time is kind of the minimal uh, show don't tell. Uh, not well, I'm just using buzzwords, but. That it, you know, when Mignola when Mignola settles into himself, it, there's more. It's, it's more of a quiet mood that his stories involve, rather than lengthy, uh, just info dumps about the Amun Jihad. I can't remember any of the fake uh, Lovecraft stuff, but you know, the dragon and the all this. You know, the the initial uh, John Byrne scripted stuff has a lot of a lot of text. There's a big text dump. Um, and uh, also, you're talking the, about uh, well, his wait, his no, no, Hellboy's true name is Anung Un Rama, but who is he? Fi- yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking the dragon, about. the big with the giant snakes, the crystal um, <laughs> in space, uh, and also in Seeds of Destruction, uh, John Byrne's original character, the Torch of Liberty, is uh, features heavily in the. Uh, he's part of the initial squad of World War II soldiers that like find Hellboy when he's summoned, ah. and. Uh, 
it's it's kind of this weird gap in the in the in the history of Hellboy because uh, John Byrne owns that character, so in all the adaptations they can't use him uh, without paying royalties. So like it, he's kind of just uh, retconned after a while. Like mm. it's a it's the Torch of Liberty that gives Hellboy his gun in, in the original comics, and like they kind of shift that around so that it's Mignola's uh, Lobster Johnson. That gives it to him. Lobster Johnson, a vigilante who worked in secret in New York City during the 1930s. Um, although the public believes that the lobster was only the hero of pulp serials and comics, he was a real man who faced gangsters as well as paranormal threats. The characters in this in this series are phenomenal. I, I wanted to kind of get into a little bit of, you know, just in case some people not, might not be that familiar with Hellboy. Hellboy is different from, let's say, X-Men or something like that that we just mentioned that kind of everybody's like, you know, basically knows what, what Spider-Man's deal is right so um how about just a little brief overview overview here uh hellboy is a well-meaning half demon whose true name i just mentioned anung unrama um which uh i guess uh means and upon his brow is set a crown of flame hellboy was summoned from hell to earth as a baby on october 5th by nazi occultists which is you know led by uh Famous Russian spooky man Rasputin. Absolutely, he's uh, granted honorary human status by the United Nations. Uh, I guess he gets he, he he gets rescued, right? I believe from the, the idea Nazi is camp, the right? Nazis summon uh, go through this extensive uh, summoning in what was called Project Ragnarok, which mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I feel like if you're listening to this, you're tangentially aware that Nazis loved spooky spooky mythology shit, <laughs> Spirit Destiny, Unterheim, whatever fucking Nordic crap. Those jazzed up idiots they're real jerks real jerks (laughs) and uh the idea was that uh these you know world war ii kind of fighting grunts that came to stop him uh stop the ceremony ended up in the wrong location that was connected uh it was just a mix-em-up and so hellboy was summoned where the americans landed and not where the nazis were trying to summon him so because he was found by let's face it like our best selves i guess you know basically he was he was found by captain america right right uh he was raised as good like the the thing that was supposed to bring the destruction of humanity was found by in our own mythologized sense of history the best america has ever been and uh, that he's working for the BPRD, the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense, which, by the way, gets its own sort of spinoff of comic books. And uh, there's just a whole kind of again, Hellboy is is kind of the 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 flagship, the masthead. But but there's all these other comics that arose from it, and this is really Mignola just kind of uh, setting in place an entire world the, of cre- uh, characters and creatures. And- it's called the Mignola verse, and it has been lauded basically for being just an incredibly coherent and like satisfying comic universe to kind of delve into because unlike other, you know, uh, unlike the DC universe and the Marvel universe where there's been reboots and world destructions and crossovers and, you know, almost a hundred years of canon that you have to futz around with, you know, the Mignola verse, everything from BPRD to Lobster Johnson to the spinoff books, uh, you know, it's just Mignola being like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, sounds good. You know, it's 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 enough to manage. Right, right. And if, to the point where when other people kind of come in and, and write in his world, the uh, fans are very protective of the choices he's made. And mm-hmm. and there's definitely like a certain sense of of um, really like like 
uh, allegiance to the choices Mignola's made and kind of the world that Mignola's built. Uh, it also helps that uh, the story of Hellboy, um, the first uh, the first volume, The Seed of Destruction, uh, takes place in the present day and yes. sets a lot of things in motion. Um you know, people are killed, uh, new villains are introduced, like larger arcs are brought into motion. But the character of Hellboy is this like grizzled, seen it all paranormal investigator with a mysterious past who's traveled the world thanks to the BPRD. So like if you want to tell Hellboy's story that's just a one off, you can just say like, oh, this happened in 1957. And, you know, you're free. You don't have to deal with any of that extra baggage. Kind of like what we were talking about what, what, with Batman, you know, the Batman story he worked on, where it was like the, from like the 1800s and stuff. But this could actually all happen in this one world and it not have to be like, okay, suspend your disbelief. We're going to go into a parallel dimension and tell a Batman story. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, so um, I, I, that's why I started to think in terms of, you know, we talked about his illustration style, but in terms of a writer, I kind of found him to be like kind of more of like a badass Neil Gaiman. You know what I mean? Like kind of a more, because look, you have, you have one overarching, especially with his game and Sandman stuff. You have this overarching story, but then in between those things, you have these shorter stories that you just mentioned, right? But there's also all, almost all of the monsters and every, I think like everything you encounter in his stories are all based on some type of folklore. Mm-hmm. And I think that connected me more to Gaiman than anything else. He's like kind of like... At he, the very least, the, 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 yeah, there's always an inspiration uh, for if, sure. If not, like a you know a word for word, an accurate recreation of the original lore. Um, so you've got uh, my ch- girlfriend Marie mm-hmm. was very upset at uh, how Mignola treated uh, Hecate or Hecate, the witch goddess, uh-huh. um, because uh, Mignola draws her as this radical uh, snake titty lady, and like. <laughs> Marie Why does she like, have a problem with radical snake titties, ladies? Has the whole world gone mad? Because Jake? Hecate is a source of strength and power from the moon, and you know it's it was it was less than respectful. Well, and maybe the they're strong breasts. I mean, we have we don't know. You can't reach out and grab the damn things. I mean, Hellboy has punched them on several occasions, <laughs> and those they refuse to go down. Um, and the way he treats like demonology and, you know, uh, Irish folklore and Japanese Shinto beliefs like, you know, he definitely plays fast and loose. But you do. It is. Um, it is always cool to see that whenever he comes in, whenever something happens, you can usually find the Wikipedia page and be like, oh, shit, this is a real thing with a real history. It, totally. So just by as, real, I mean, you know, as an folklore. example, and this was uh, Dex's uh, favorite uh of the of the trades the chained coffin and others uh set of short stories there's a story in that called the corpse it's based oh, on the, the irish so folklore uh, uh folk tale tigo kane and the corpse um an interesting another interesting thing about the corpse by the way it was serialized in two page installments in uh, capital city's advanced comics when mignola first completed the story he thought that the limitations of the two-page format meant that it was going to be like total shit but in hindsight People like love that story so much that he now considers it one of his best works. So sometimes uh, constraint can really lead to if great you, things. If you like, really don't have the time to take the deep dive. The corpse is such a satisfying read. It really lays out Mignola's strength as an artist and a storyteller. Um, just you know, the transitions from panel to panel and the way it kind of tells this self-contained story is amazing. 
I, I, I definitely want to go back and check it out. I actually have like a lot of this episode more than I think maybe any other um, that we have even done so far has given me this like total drive to want to go and dig in and just fucking read all this shit. It looks so good. And what I have read and what I have uh, seen, I'm just cannot wait. I know I'm going to love this, you uh-huh. know, and it's just something I just have never gotten around to digging into. And I'm just totally going to. Um uh, uh, other folklore, though, uh, that I found. So, in Nature of the Beast, these are a lot of these are short stories that I found that had that, that I found actual examples, but I'm sure they exist all throughout like the main arc as well. Uh, Nature of the Beast is uh, an English folktale about Saint Leonard of Limousin, um, King Vold. Uh, they use Norwegian folktales for that, the Flying Huntsman and Green Giant. In the story Heads, um, that took a lot of work because apparently it was a, a, an adaptation of a Japanese folktale that was kind of tricky. To, oh, that's to also tr- a fun one. Yeah. Um, what's 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 the deal with Heads? Um, it's Hellboy is wandering around Japan and is brought into a mysterious uh, inn, mm. and then spooky shit happens. Cool. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Todd is all H.P. Lovecraft. Lovecraft is huge for Mignola. Uh, and this uh, was, it should be it should be worth mentioning that uh, when Mignola was doing this in 1994, this was before Cthulhu became a meme. Yeah. This was before you could like see a bunch of weirdos walking around in steampunk goggles. And he was, uh, he's, he was quite critical of the way most people, especially like comic book writers and artists, handle Lovecraft uh, because... He, he, I was reading an interview with him, uh, so I don't have a verbatim or anything, but he was talking just about how they always just equate Lovecraft to just these giant tentacle monsters, you know, coming out and, and, and killing everybody. It doesn't do and, a lot to sway that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was talking about how so much to him of Lovecraft is in the tone mm-hmm. and in the mood. And, and um, giant tentacle monsters are definitely a big part of it, but they're just a part of it. They're a half of it, mm-hmm. you know, and the other half is real. And I, I do kind of understand what he's talking about when kind of getting into um, the kind of H.P. Lovecraft's general style and everything. So, um, yeah, uh, anyways, um, going back to Hellboy himself um, and kind of more, more of an overview really quick, just he has a superhuman strength. He's got the... The, 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 just the, his whole look tells a story. The filed down horns are so striking. Yeah. And what they convey, what that means about the character, you know, um, the way he's treated in the human world is very interesting. You know, people just like throw shit at him. It's <laughs> Real very, dicks. it's the, <laughs> for a, for a good part of Mignola's, uh, Hellboy stories, like, the like the day to day concerns of the average person are like not really a big deal. Usually, Hellboy is like wandering around some remote area that is afflicted by like the myth, you know, the mystical boogeymen of old in whatever form they take. And like most people are always like, "You're real funny looking." He's yeah. like, "I get that a lot." <laughs> and <laughs> those are my favorite parts of Hellboy too, which we'll get to later. But somebody's just like, "Hey, Hellboy!" He's like, "I know, I know. I'm stu- I look, like, I look ridiculous, or something like that." <laughs> um, the character Hellboy is a great, is a really great protagonist for a comic, especially one that's kind of as um, as serialized as this. The one that kind of can kind of go from situation to situation. He draws upon like two fisted adventurers uh, tropes. Uh, He's, you know, this stocky kind of built like a brick shit house Jack Kirby 
kind of fighting style where like he's just knocking he's just getting knocked around and like he just has a very you know uh, uh just clobbering well he's got the violent. right hand of doom yeah. uh the right hand that was originally the right hand of anum one of the greater spirits that watched over the burgeoning earth and created the Ogdru jihad hellboy's arch enemy i just love the cryptic occult sounding names and languages and everything that exist in this that build the world um so i love pronouncing and he's these so old and he's been through so much shit that it's like it's just a fun idea that you know you know in this ancient horror of this darkness this unknowable thing whether that's like a vampire or a ghost or any other you know terror that dark that lurks in the night and hell was like ah shit one of these okay all right all right i think it's i think they hate sage do i have any sage um you know he's 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 kind of he's he's hard to surprise and so it it it's he's like a noir detective almost yeah. you know he's part of the underworld he that he ends up ending up having to fight uh-huh yeah um absolutely. he's aware of like the grays but even though it's a very stark black and white and comic. it's that that outcast just the whole vibe of him i mean we you know i, I always reference stuff that we've kind of just done episodes on because they're sort of fresh in my head but i mean definitely naruto vibes oh absolutely coming coming into play here because it's that same thing of just this of this quote-unquote hero that no that everyone fucking hates uh, i mean the now that you fucking mentioned it, the parallels of this like young child that does not understand the evil destiny that was laid out for him and him you know, trying his damnedest to fight for the side that he was supposedly going to destroy and, you know, never quite gaining the acceptance that he wants uh, is real good. Um, shit. Yeah, That's right. That's a hot take. So uh, I want to I want to jump into the films. I want to get back. Uh, uh, I, we're not oh, done talking about the comics. But, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's besides that, the Mignolaverse is full of all these like incredibly uh, uh, fun characters. Uh, you know, Abe Sapien, Liz Sherman, um, the uh Spooky Nazi guys of <laughs> all shapes and sizes. Um, uh, uh, Roger the homunculus. Like it's it's you know these within this framework of of you know government conspiracies and dark secrets. Uh, he has a lot to play with. It's this perfect pastiche, and that's like it's 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 this playground of all these fun old ideas that um, that. Mignola brings in into a shared universe and kind of makes his own. Um, Alan Moore wrote the uh, one of the preludes to one of the Hellboy trades and talks about how like it is a wonderful thing that Hellboy can exist because we have so much access to the past in the modern world mm-hmm. that Mignola can like let us just kind of live in a in a in a forgotten time that people wouldn't normally be able to play around with. It's like a true, besides the fact that he's a brilliant comic artist, the uh, the fact that we can play around with this idealized version of superstition and heroism and uh, antiquity is an incredible gift that we should uh, really appreciate. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I should have said it like this. (laughs) Also, the internet makes you dumb. (laughs) I want to eat some crisps. (laughs) Crisps, huh? I love crisps. Does that mean chips? What a, what, is, what is nuts in that? I'm going back into my cave. What's the word for nuts? I'm going to just huff ether and wish for your doom. Hey, do you have any Spawn comics? I want Spawn. Someday there will be a reckoning. <laughs> and you will know that I was right. 
<laughs> I like, have you ever read Spawn Reckoning? That's probably a comic book <laughs> that Spawn did. Words have power. <laughs> Words are the physical manifestation of the invisible energy of our minds and you are wasting them. first he's like a clown right but then it's just like blah he becomes this fucking monster dude and, the, and it's called he's called the fucking violator there are not enough prostitutes in the world <laughs> for me to fuck away the hatred <laughs> that i feel for you right in now. 2004 the hellboy film comes out but to get there we've got a lot of ways to go they guillermo del toro i mean let's let's okay a man wants to make a comic book series that gives him an, just a wonderful excuse to draw incredible-looking monsters. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, there's another man coming out of a different part of the world that wants to just make movies as an excuse to, to just create badass, awesome-looking monsters. This is like the perfect marriage here of monster-making men. The MMM, the triple M's of the Hollywood, of, of, of Two comics Two doughy geniuses at the height of their power. Guillermo del Toro has this wonderful quote, and I love it. Um, and I will not be doing a Guillermo del Toro impression, because again, I just think it'll come off as racist like my Italian man did <laughs> at the beginning of the episode. He says, people say, you know, I like your Spanish movies more than I like your English language movies, because they are not as personal. And I say, fuck, you're wrong. <laughs> Hellboy is as personal to me as Pan's Labyrinth. They're totally different, and yes, of course you can like one more than the other. The other one may seem banal or whatever it is that you don't like, but it really is part of the same movie. You make one movie. Hitchcock did one movie all his life. I fucking love that quote, Jake. That's I love good. that quote. It makes me want to just like burn the whole building to the ground, Jake. I don't know why that uh, connects to that, but it does. I'm in a weird mood today. A adaptation... Uh, he, he, he starts to work on an adaptation of Seed of Destruction. It's a screenplay that Del Toro worked on um, based on Mignola's uh, uh, story. Um, and the way Mignola tells it, first of all, you know, he, Mignola tells, uh, or Del Toro tells Mignola, he's like, I'm going to keep you as far away from these Hollywood rooms <laughs> as I possibly can because you would not survive a minute inside of them because like, he's like, I will protect you. And he, and he fought at, and again, as Mignola describes it, Guillermo del Toro fought his ass off to get Hellboy made, fought his fucking ass. I off. mean, he had as much clout as he possibly could have had, um, after, uh, blade two, which yeah. was an incredibly successful movie mm -hmm. and, uh, kind of, you know, brought him onto the scene. Uh, he had highs and lows since then. Shape of Water was fucking incredible, and now I'm sure the world is his. And if you want to hear a discussion about that, check out our uh, Patreon bonus content. Um, we 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 totally uh, Jake and I loved that. Mm -hmm. I'm 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 such I'm just be, by the day I'm becoming a bigger <laughs> and bigger fan of Guillermo del Toro. I f I just love. We gotta, his we stuff. gotta get fucking blazed up on that goblin and mm -hmm. uh, watch that Troll Hunter animated yeah, show. Yeah, <laughs> dude, let's get into it. Um. So uh, he creates an adaptation of Seed of Destruction, the very first sort of big, you know, uh, arc in, in Hellboy. Um, and they, of course, unanimously agreed before they even had to talk to each other that Mignola and Del Toro both knew that Ron Perlman was the perfect man to according, play according Hellboy. To, yeah, according to the factoid that I'm reading on uh, IMDb, uh, <laughs> they chose to reveal their first choice at the same time, and they said Ron Perlman in unison. That's incredible. Ron Perlman, born in Washington Heights, New York. Um, he, 
he he said of his time growing up it was not a bad childhood but I had a perception of myself that was I was terribly overweight as a young kid and it was sort of a low self-image he cited this experience is one of the things that attracts him to roles where he portrays in his quotes these sorts of deformed people who are very endearing so he's just perfect for the part also just emotionally you well know? you know when one of his uh, mo- before this one of his most notable deformed uh, beauty and the beast yeah absolutely beauty and the beast he played the beast um did he win the emmy he went to the emmys right it was because it was i believe a made for tv film i just wanted our crossover moment our cucka crossover moment because george r, r. martin worked on that show oh that's right and we totally <laughs> talked about that in the game of thrones episode um so his uh his father after seeing ron perlman in a college production of guys and dolls told him that he had to pursue a career as an actor um so he ends up, of course, just perfect for this role, just in every sort of every way. Um, the film also stars Selma Blair as Liz Sherman. We didn't really talk about Liz Sherman very much. The um, uh, she's sort of the has the pyromancy. It's 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 uh, one of the. It's not a strong point in uh, Mignola's work, but like Liz Sherman is this cool like goth girl with like a mysterious like you know hurt in her past, but like she has the Jean Grey Phoenix problem. Where her core power set is just too overpowered to deal with, like, most of the issues that come up. Right. So she either has to get, like, faint. She has to faint or someone has to, like, steal her energy. Or they basically she's like a nuclear bomb that is also Princess Peach. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. They kind of, um, yeah, they have to damsel her, like, way too early because otherwise she can just, like, go white-eyed and just melt everything. Right, right. Jeffrey Tambor uh, plays Tom Manning, um, like the, the, an agent for BPRD. Uh, and Doug Jones plays Abe Sapien. We talked about Doug Jones in the Shape of Water uh, episode um, the, in the bonus content, but uh, he's, he's, the, he's the creature that you see in like all of Guillermo del Toro's stuff and a lot of other stuff. He is like that monster uh, you always see in his films. And he plays multiple monsters in the, Hell, in the Hellboy films. Uh, in For Hellboy 1, his dialogue was actually dubbed by Frazier's David yes, Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce, who's I love. Nigel he's, himself. I, he's like, my that's like probably my favorite sitcom character like ever. <laughs> I love him and I love that character. But he was so uh, moved by Doug's uh, on-screen performance of Abe Sapien. Because uh, if you watch it, like he does a very, you know, he inhabits this wiggly amphibious creature Uh uh, that he refused credit and made sure that it was Doug Jones listed as Abe Sapien. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, So, and and the film, this is much more Guillermo del Toro really taking great strides to attempt to really, um, you know, nail Mignola's world. And therefore, this film has much more of a gothic setting. It was filmed in Prague, even though several scenes are supposed to take place in a... There's a scene where like Hellboy's running around like fighting the froggy monster, which Hellboy fights a lot of froggy monsters. Yes. Mignola seems to enjoy a froggy monster. Bit of a frog monster lover. Mm, aren't we all? Mm. Um, and uh, the scenes that take place that are supposed to be on like an average American street look really wrong <laughs> because they're definitely just a random street in Prague that they had to like gussy up. Right, right. Um, and, and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Did you, you, yeah? Did you enjoy the Hellboy film? I absolutely enjoyed the Hellboy film, especially because again, this was I kind of just missed the boat on Hellboy. Same. I feel like we both are inspired by our own episode this week, mm-hmm. like to go out and dig deep, much deeper. 
Um, my, my friend Evan, uh, when I asked for pointers on like what Hellboy meant to people at the, when it was first being published, was like, you know, you would open a copy of Wizard and there'd be like Hellboy teams up with Batman and it'd be in this cool inky style and it'd be like, oh, I guess I guess Batman's teaming up with this guy. <laughs> cool. I'm going to go read more Youngblood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It was like we just weren't cool enough to get it back in the day. Yeah. So um, that first film does pretty good, well enough for them um, uh, to to be able to make a sequel. Also, though, I believe it's because I believe he made Pan's Labyrinth in between Hellboy and Hellboy 2, which gave him a little bit more of a budget, I think, for this one. Either way, though, the sequel was uh, announced pretty quickly. It was announced um, in 04, a month after the release of the first one. Del Toro returns to direct Ron Perlman, returns as Hellboy. Um, it was uh, In Del Toro's mind, it was originally supposed to be a trilogy for him. Uh, he says, uh, Del Toro says of of this, um, this film, visually, I'm as proud of this new movie as anything I've already done. In the first Hellboy, I was a lot more slavish to uh, Mike Mignola's visual universe. This time, I frankly decided to let my hair loose. It was a very difficult and painful movie to shoot, but creatively, it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had. He was approached by Peter Jackson to direct the Halo movie, which mm. is another pie-in-the-sky project that had been passed around Hollywood. Uh-huh. And especially in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, I guess, by this point. No, no, early 2000s. That was good. That's like a moneymaker. And Del Toro honestly, like, truly loved the Hellboy world that he had built that, you know, he turned it down to do this. Yeah, yeah. He, 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 I, I, another thing I fucking absolutely love about. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and also, uh, in a similar sacrifice, Ron Perlman turned down the role of Piccolo in Dragon Ball Evolution no. to do this movie. Right, I kind of wish I could have seen him in Dragon Ball Evolution. I'm not going to lie. I, kind I just of wish, wish I, anything was different to make Dragon Ball Evolution more watchable. <laughs> Uh, so another thing he, you know, all like the creatures in, in this, in this movie, as much as they could be, were, uh, actual physical creatures, physically created, uh, uh, rather non-CGI. He said of the 32 creatures we created for the movie, about 90% were created physically. Only the creatures that were too big, like the elemental character or too small, like the tooth fairies were created using CGI. Um, uh, and and he really leaned in again. It was like Guillermo del Toro was kind of and I and, and it seems vaguely like Mignola might have gotten a little frustrated with his lack of involvement in the second one. I think that Guillermo del Toro was kind of holding his ground a little bit more in terms of like, no, this is the movie. I'm going to do this in this movie. You know, this film much more of a fantasy feeling to it, much more of a fantasy setting as opposed to the first one, which had much more of a sort of a horror um, feeling setting, you know, more Lovecraftian, more uh, dark. This one is just like incredibly imaginative, definitely taps in to uh, Del Toro's love of dark fairy tales, has a lot of that to it. I actually just uh, rewatched it and I fucking love Hellboy 2. It is phenomenal. It is so, it, it like, it's a superhero movie that really moves forward real like it constantly is throwing new and interesting things at you and not in a in a splashy kind of um like not 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 in like a, an obnoxious way in like a, in like a wonderful way mm. like it's just constantly giving you like new amazing monster designs the fights are really cool that angel of death thing is fucking the terrifying angel of death part is so awesome i love it so much of course um 
Doug Jones plays the Angel of Death. Just look at a picture of the Angel of Death. It looks very Pan's Labyrinthy. The eyeballs on the wings are are just fantastic. It's so it's so wonderfully terrifying, and yet at the same time, it's like playing this sort of savior character. Um, all all of the different designs, the 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 sort of the crown on the um, what's his name, the the old king, the ancient Balor? king. Yeah, the, the the like crown that's not actually a crown because it's like actually just like wooden sort of um, horns coming off of his, the top of his head. It's been a while since I've seen it. So it's I, it's yeah. just a ton of fucking cool design choices like that, um, and and really retaining that wonderful sense of humor. Jeffrey Tambor is a perfect uh, actor to be in a Hellboy movie. He's just got that really great dry kind of great comedic timing, and and Ron Perlman does as well. Everyone. It, loves the scene where Hellboy and uh, Abe Sapien get a little drunk in the library so and good singing so funny and yeah oh my god that that whole that whole section was was just just great um so yeah and, and, and here's here's another great quote I, I pulled a lot of quotes I think they're mostly from the same interview but this is another quote uh, this is about Hellboy's vulnerability we were talking about with Ron Perlman and everything um, that I thought was really wonderful from Del Toro really really says that he gets it when it comes to this character when we use the word superhuman we always use it in a Nietzschean sense meaning the guy that is overqualified as a human but what I love about Hellboy is that he is superhuman in his flaws he is like a monument to human vulnerability he has the extraordinary job of hunting down monsters, but he goes at it like a blue-collar plumber. I love that simplicity in the comics. In the movies, we've taken it up a couple of notches in that we've given him an almost childlike innocence or a brat-like innocence in some instances. With Ron Perlman playing Hellboy, your heart goes out to him because he's such a wide-eyed, big-hearted creature. Um, and speaking of being wide-eyed and big-hearted, of course, there's that uh, moment uh, off the screen when Ron Perlman went into full Hellboy makeup for the Make-A-Wish mm -hmm. uh, kid, which actually inspired Del Toro to go back to bat trying to fight for a Hellboy 3. Um, uh, Del Toro, uh, you know, he so desperately wanted to close the loop that he had been building that um, he actually approached Mike Mignola and asked him permission to uh, release his you know, final chapter in the form of a comic book, which is, happens, it's a very common thing to happen. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer did it. I just read that Mignola vetoed that. Yeah. Yeah, just because straight up. Probably just didn't want to keep writing the comic. I mean, we'll get into Mignola returning to the, I think this was after he finished the Hellboy, uh, yeah, Hellboy in Hell. Okay. Uh, I think he was just done after that. You know, it was like, Hellboy is donezo. This is my finale. And it's beautiful, you know, from what I've read about it, I can't wait to go read it myself. There's but some really striking stuff. It's um, beautiful. His hell is apparently just absolutely fascinating. It's a, it's kind of a mishmash of every, you know, it's the Hellboy in Hell arc is hell uh, is hellboy kind of wandering um in different cultures idea of hell yeah. and how Mignola interprets it's awesome. that it's it's very good and it was also an excuse for him i'm going to have him go to hell so that i can just go all mm. all out and and draw everything just anything and everything i want to uh which is a really smart choice also i just want to shout out cuz we sometimes we do not talk about these things spectral motion and film effects are uh the different um special effects studios that created the creatures the makeup and prosthetics for the film i want to go learn more about those people especially Guillermo del Toro's people i just think that they do such unbelievable work the the monsters in Guillermo del Toro's films from Hellboy to Shape of Water to Pan's Labyrinth are just incredible and I do love how of course Abe the um 
Aquaman in this movie. Clearly, you know, incredibly inspirational for the um, sea monster in um, Shape of Things for the asset, as it were. Uh, So, yeah, now this this is kind of like... um, Sort of a sad part of the chapter a little bit to to kind of end out on, but then it ends with a little bit of light. But, um, man, this sequel, just just the back and forth that happened. I mean, over years and years, you've got Ron Perlman and Del Toro both just going back and forth, becoming incredibly passionate about making another one, and then getting stamped down by Hollywood and all the powers that well, be. Well, Hellboy 2 like, had a pretty strong showing its first week, but then... Uh, uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight kind of came in and just kicked the shit out of any thunder that it would have built up. Right. So it didn't, you know, it was kind of a flop financially. Um, Del Toro said uh, this was, I think, maybe in like, oh... Eight oh nine, something like that. I think we would all come back to do a third Hellboy if they can wait for me to get out of Middle Earth, but we don't know. Ron may want to do it sooner, but I certainly know where we're going with the movie on the third one. So what he's referring to is he was directing The Hobbit. He ends up dropping out of The Hobbit May 30th, 2010. But then years pass, there's just different kind of back and forth about it. On July 11th, 2014, in a Reddit AMA, Del Toro said... Well, you know, we don't have the, that movie on the horizon, but the idea for it was to have uh, Hellboy finally come to terms with the fact that the, his destiny, uh, his horizon, uh, I'm sorry, his destiny, his inevitable destiny, is to become the beast of the apocalypse and having him and Liz face the sort of that part of his nature, and he has to do it in order to be able to ironically vanquish the foe that uh, has to fa- he has to face in the third film. He has to become the beast of the apocalypse to be able to defend humanity, but at the same time, he becomes a much darker being. It's a very interesting ending to the series, but I don't think it will happen. Um, and actually, he cites the death of DVDs as being the big mm-hmm. reason, because Hellboy did fine in the theaters. Hellboy 2 did fine in the theaters, but they really did fantastically uh, on DVD form. And once that kind of went away, it was hard as hell to make the case, apparently. Because a cult, a cult film can't like easily make its money back. During the, I mean, in the VHS days, just outright crappy movies were incredibly popular if your box had cool enough shit on it. Right? So... Um, everything kind of goes away in terms of that, uh, and then, uh, later on, of course, uh, well, fucking very recently, uh, very recently. the news comes out, they're making a new Hellboy, Hellboy Rise of the Blood uh, Queen, which was changed to just Hellboy, um, it's scheduled to release January 11th, 2019, and it's directed by Neil Marshall, he directed episodes of Game of Thrones, um, episodes of Hannibal, an episode of Westworld. His movie Doomsday is fun as hell. The Descent is awesome. <laughs> yeah. I love that. De- he directed the horror film The Descent about the spelunkers or the cave. Uh, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know exactly. Monster. It's so good. I if love that movie. If the title uh, Rise of the Blood Queen is accurate, then it probably will uh, deal with the story. Wild Hunt? The, the Wild Hunt, Fury and Storm are okay. kind of this uh, later Hellboy stories that were really good. I think drawn by Duncan Figrado, who's like a really, you know, written by Mignola. And that involves like uh, Hellboy's kind of relation to the King Arthur mythos mm. and really kind of takes this, you know, really ups the ante. It's kind of, uh, uh, you know, the trials and it, it's, it's higher stakes than what uh, Hellboy had been going through. Um, and they released that test shot of David Harbour, uh, you know, from Stranger Things. 
and those so David tight Harbor ends. will <laughs> is to star as Hellboy David Harbor um, from Stranger Things and more recently those Tide commercials on the Super Bowl. But the test, <laughs> the makeup test shot that they revealed was fucking crazy. That's yeah, it's, it looks it's great. It's Hellboy, man. Yeah, it's super Hellboy. And it also another awesome thing is it will have an R rating. It was uh, written by the script was written by Mike Mignola, Andrew Cosby, Christopher Golden, and Aaron Collate. Col- uh, these other three guys, I looked them up. I mean, they a lot of them are, are comic industry guys. Um, they don't necessarily have any like giant credit to hang hang a hat on necessarily. They're all just sort of industry guys. Um, so I think this is kind of their big their big script uh, for each of them. Kind of a big break for them. Uh, Ian McShane, who I love, is Swearingen. Um, and uh, oh fuck, what's the name of that Deadwood. show? Tor- Deadwood, Deadwood. Thank you. Uh, as Swearingen in Deadwood, he's cast as Trevor Bruttenholm. Uh, Mila Jovovich will be the Blood Queen, which is kind of crazy. Now, the sad part is Del Toro was asked oh, to... Broom. Br- Professor Broom. Professor Broom, right? Who That was John Hurt's character in the... Uh, yes. Yeah. And Del Toro was asked to produce, but he declined because he wanted so bad to direct his own script for Hellboy 3. Ron Perlman refused to star in the film without Del Toro. So this is what led Neil Marshall uh, to uh, Neil Marshall's attachment and uh, to the film and the film status as a reboot. Uh, Andrew Cosby, uh, one of the writers, said, Neil said from the very beginning that he wanted to walk a razor's edge between horror and comic book movie, which was music to my ears, because that's what I was shooting for in the script, and precisely what Mignola does so well with the comics. So it's going to be it's gonna be a much darker, much... And this is interesting for me, too, because there's also that... What was the X-Men movie that is a horror film that's coming out? New Mutants. New Mutants. It got pushed back, but I'm so excited for it. I think that might be one of the new turns in comic book films is more of a horror, straight-up horror uh, the fact is uh, genre. Comics attempt. was never a genre. It was a right, medium. Right, And they've started to become so samey, <laughs> and so I'm excited to see some real risks being taken. You know, you've got, like, Dead pull and then these like uh, attempts at, at just nailing the horror genre using superheroes i would really love to see more things like that oh i just want to make a passing reference to the original animated movies that came out um i uh watched uh, blood and iron which was a very fun like especially if you're a fan of the comics you can mm. see what they borrowed from uh the original comics it's kind of mixed and mashed and mushed together in order to fit a kind of tvy7 uh, cartoon format because they were aired on Cartoon Network and they were kind of they were kind of like in between uh, 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 you know there was like maybe this will be an animated series maybe this will be like a children's property um, but you know uh, Ron Perlman you know the voice cast is from the uh, Del Toro movies and I watch them for free there's like you can watch them like legitimately streaming for free cool uh, and uh, I, I had a I had a fun time I wouldn't call it a masterpiece but if you like this universe and want to kill like an hour they were perfectly fun so what's Mignolo up to now watercolor he's a <laughs> painter uh that's kind of what he's focused on uh full-time watercolor and i'm sure i'm gonna butcher this but gauche gauche it's a method of painting Gosh. using opaque pigments ground in water and thickened with a glue-like substance of this Mignola says i think the drawing in the comic is fine, but none of the drawings get the kind of focus you would be doing if you were just doing a painting or a standalone drawing. Some part of me started saying, you know, it's been good that you've been able to do some stuff as a cartoonist, writing and drawing your own stuff, but you always kind of wanted to be an artist. And I just don't think I've been doing artwork that's up to what I would do if I focused all my energies on it. So he it is comes now, full circle. Mm-hmm, he is now full on um, 
painting, which is kind of amazing. Uh, if you have been inspired to read the Hellboy comics like I have, uh, but from from this episode and the prep I've done for this episode, um, you might want to wait like just a few months, like I'm going to do, because they're all about to get released in um, the full complete story in in the omnibus editions coming out. Uh, the first one comes out on June 5th. There's going to be four volumes: Seed of Destruction, Strange Places, The Wild Hunt, and Hellboy in Hell. So that'll be the full complete. Hellboy arc, and then separately, they're going to release two volumes of just the short stories, so you can get all of that shit starting, it's going to start rolling out in June, I believe there's a release almost every month though, so it's all going to get released in 2018, uh, and I am very excited, because I think I'm going to probably set aside some dough and pick those up, um, so yeah, check it out. Um, I guess for in a in a concluding note that I just want to you know the stuff that I wanted to get out there before we wrap this up, um, you know Hellboy isn't the only paranormal investigation conspiracy mythology uh, show or you know property out there. Uh, you know Hellblazer does a lot of similar stuff. Uh, people have pointed out that the everything from the chiaroscuro uh, pastiche of like uh, pop culture and horror and legend. Uh, is very reminiscent of Tiziano Sclavis, an Italian artist's uh, original work called Dylan Dog uh, that Mignola did the covers for for the localizations. And uh, it's just really, like, looking back on my comics experiences in the 90s, it's kind of amazing how Mignola's arc is the weird, like, opposite of, like, people like McFarlane and uh, Rob Liefeld, where they were pursuing, like, the new, the energy the just the spastic id of teenage youth uh mignola kind of zagged and looked towards the past and looked towards like history and pulp novels and all these like kind of forgotten uh symbols that you know were basically unused and he made it his own and even though he just stuck with what he was doing and it was it wasn't as like exciting or profitable as what the younger guys were doing he kind of like built his own audience and the people that found it were inspired and, you know, were also kind of appreciated the works of the past. And while, uh, you know, Spawn is still like in weird development hell and, you know, kind of has fizzled out and Rob Liefeld is like a literal joke, even though Deadpool is doing amazingly in our Deadpool episode, I laid out that Deadpool is pretty much like the anti Rob Liefeld. It's literally a mockery of what Rob Liefeld does. Um, (laughs) Uh, Mignola kind of built this fucking this sturdy ass house just by sticking to his guns and doing what he wanted to do. Absolutely, it's pretty amazing, it, and 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 that's why Hellboy I do think is just so damn special. Mm. Um, all right, well that's our episode on Hellboy. Um, thank you so much if you if you for listening. If you want to uh, write a review on iTunes, that would help us a big old bunches, and even more so to help us if you want to go check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. Uh, we do bonus content every single week, as long as well as some other benefits. You can check out all that stuff over there. You uh, can shape the the future of this podcast. Absolutely, I, I it is it is. I'm I'm it's I'm intensely reliant on the Patreon to <laughs> to literally like do this and and um the other things I do. Uh so also uh follow me speaking of which follow me on Twitch uh twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho and Jake. Uh you can follow me on Twitter at best Jake Young. If you are vaguely curious, uh Dorkly has started its own little like weekly news oh, roundup cool. show 
and I've been uh, helping out a little on some of the more recent episodes. Awesome. Um, so give that a listen if you just really need to hear some wet-mouthed <laughs> men and women uh, talk about gaming news. <laughs> uh, do it up. Yeah. All right. Take care, everybody. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.